You have been around here since uh, January, or even if you were around here and maybe you don't remember, we have uh, we're, we're been in the, in the book of Acts, but we've been looking at primarily since uh, Acts 15, which we started in January, was an issue that was possibly going to separate the church. And the issue got to be such a hot thing that Paul and Barnabas had to actually get help from the, uh, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, Peter and James and others, had to get help and, and have them uh, decide how this thing was going to go. If you remember in that, uh, what the issue was, was some people came up to Antioch and came up there and said, unless Gentiles, non-Jewish people, unless Gentiles become circumcised, they cannot be saved. They cannot be part of the kingdom of God. They cannot enter into heaven. They cannot have a relationship with Christ if you don't become a Jew first. That was the issue. And the issue before them was, was do uh, non-Jewish Christians need to follow all of the Jewish cultural restrictions, including circumcision? Paul and Barnabas said, no, no, they don't have to. That was an old system. We do not need to follow that anymore. But many of the Jewish Christians at the time, especially from Jerusalem, said, yes, they do. And like I say, it got so heated, they had to go to Jerusalem and talk to the leadership down there. Peter and James weighed in on this, and they also came to the conclusion that it was, no, you do not need to follow all of the Jewish customs, including circumcision. You don't need to do any of that in order to be a follower of Jesus and, and observe and have all of the rights and privileges that go with it. So they sent a letter. They sent a letter to all these churches, all the new churches that had formed. The, the apostles from Jerusalem sent a letter, and the letter contained greetings, and it's good to hear about great things that are happening with you and all that kind of thing. And then it concludes with this. In Acts 15, verses 20 to 29, it says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain... From, and then it lists four things. You're supposed to abstain from these four things. Food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. And that sounds good. Controversy's all over, right? Got the thing taken care of. I understand the first three restrictions completely. It makes sense. You've got Jews and Gentiles, and the, the Jewish people have all these food restrictions, and and these people in Jerusalem are saying, listen, I know you're free, you can eat anything you want, but you know what, just for the sake of your, of your friends, your Jewish friends, abstain from these things because it's really offensive. That makes total sense. But why the fourth restriction? The fourth restriction? Yeah, I got the food thing, sacrificed idols, the blood, the meat of strangled animals, and then it says, and from sexual immorality. Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, why that one? Why not? why not all the other things? Why not greed or idolatry or lying or fits of rage or slander or gossip or what the Bible calls the worst sin in the whole of sin, pride. Avoid pride. Wouldn't that be offensive? 
doesn't say that. It says sexual immorality. Why avoid sexual immorality? Starting next week, we're going to take a little bit of a bunny trail? I don't know. A little bit of a, a three-week mini-series, we're calling it, on the pain of sexual immorality. Why the apostles included that command in their command to all the churches. In their letter to all the churches, they, they, they said, avoid sex, sexual immorality. We're going to look at that issue of why did they, did they deal with that issue then, and then we're going to deal with how do we deal with that whole area of sexual immorality in our culture in our day. It's a three-week series. And I just want to give you just a quick word about this. We're going to be talking frankly, we're going to be talking openly, and we're also going to be talking tactfully about this area of sexual immorality. Parents, uh, you may wish for your children to, to attend kids' church. Kids' church will be open for any age. If, the, if you decide that's something you want to do, that's totally fine. Um, we will be talking openly about things, but it will be done tactfully, so you don't need to be in any concern for that, but you may want to decide to do that. Our three-week series will include, the first week will be on, what's this whole sex thing about anyway? What was God thinking when he created this? Second week, we'll look at ways that our culture has allowed for the pain of sexual immorality to become part of the cultural norm. And the third week, we'll look at, help, I need to know how to have triumph and healing from the pain of sexual immorality. So that's where we're going to go with this in three weeks. And I kind of wanted to give a little commercial this morning. And also, uh, just a fair heads up for parents who may wish to look at other options for the kid. That starts next week. This week, we're continuing on in the book of Acts. I was originally going to do this right when we were at Acts 15, and it wasn't going to be a, a rewind. We're doing a little bit of a rewind here because uh, you all don't come, many of you students don't come back until after Martin Luther King. So I thought, ah, we'll wait. So we did wait a little bit. We are back in our series of Church on Fire, which is a study of the book of Acts. We are all the way to Acts 17. We are moving right along. This is, I don't know how I know this, but this is the 50th message. <laughs> wow, you can get a lot of mileage out of one book of the Bible. In the book of Acts. And we left Paul last time. He is just leaving a city of Philippi. You want to throw up the map there, David and John? Yep. And he has, he's on his, what, what we've called his second missionary journey. Watch the red dot. And by the way, Nathan Ziegler gave me this. You know why? Because he likes me. <laughs> so he said. Um, and, uh, and then here's this whole region of Galatia. Those who are in the Galatians class, it's all right in here. Anyway, he, he comes down. We saw this whole thing about he's here at where five is. And he couldn't go to the northeast. He couldn't go to the northwest. He couldn't go to the south uh, because the spirit of Jesus had stopped him and, and water stopped him. He didn't want to go back east, so he says he just went to Troas. We talked about, uh, I guess we're going to Troas that week. And then last week he went over to Philippi because once he gets to Troas, then the, uh, he gets a vision of a guy in Macedonia saying, come, help us. We need help. So he goes over here to Macedonia, to Philippi, and he was there, and we got him uh, kicked out of there last week, the end of last week. And now he is going to be going to, this week, we're calling it a tale of two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. You can see him right down there. So with that, if you want to open your Bibles to Acts 17, we're going to look at the first 15 verses this morning on what's going on in these two cities. We'll start with Thessalonica. 
Okay, let's just read the first four verses here. It says, this is at Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphilippus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. I like that phrase, not a few. That mean a lot. It's just a neat way to say it, not a few. Huh? How'd you do on your test? I got not a few. Yeah. So... Paul starts off what he normally does. He normally goes into the synagogue. You go where the fishing is best. So he goes to the hot spot where the people believe basically in the exact same God. They believe the entire Old Testament. And that's all there was then because the book of Acts wasn't even written yet. Nothing was written yet. So it's just they had the same Bible. So he goes there. That's where he starts. And what does Paul do? Paul, there's six parts to Paul's strategy. Six parts to Paul and what he's trying to do here in this little, uh, this little encounter. And it's very informative on what we learn about Paul. Six ways Paul communicated Jesus to people. I'm just going to look at six verbs in this, in this chunk of, of Scripture. First thing he did is it said he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Ten times... In the book of Acts, that word reason is going to be used from, the, from chapter 17 to 24. Ten times that word reasoned is going to be used. And if you look at how it's translated in those different times in the book of Acts, sometimes it's discussed. Other times it's, it's translated as argued bitterly. So it's somewhere between a coffee shop conversation and throwing pots and pans. Somewhere in there is this reasoning thing where he's reasoning with them in this formal setting, somewhat formal setting, of a synagogue. And that's what he's doing. He's there reasoning with them from the Scripture. Second thing he does is he explains things to them. Verse 3, it says, explaining. Now, if, anybody got a King James Bible with them? Anybody? 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 Man, man, we are dated. There's not a single person here with King James. King James actually gets this, this right, but it doesn't make sense. But that's typical for the King Jimmy. But it's right, though. It just doesn't make good English. In King James, it says opening, because that's what the word is. He's opening. It's the same word that Luke, who wrote Acts, uses also in, in Luke 24, 32. And this is the part where Jesus, after his resurrection, is walking with these disciples, and he explains to them the Old Testament, how it all points to, to, to Christ, how it all points to himself. And they don't recognize him at first, if you're familiar with that. Luke 24, it says, then they're talking to each other about this encounter that they had with Jesus after he's left them, and, and, and that, that time where he explained the scriptures to them. He says, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Now, I don't know about you, but this book, well, not this particular one, but one like it, 
Before I came to know Christ, I tried several times to actually read this thing. Some of you have maybe done that. Where you just said, you know, I'm going I'm to figure this out. And of course, where you start, like anybody starts, you start in the beginning, right? So you get to Genesis and you start. And it's kind of interesting, you know, boom, this happened, that happened, this day, that day. And then you get to he begat, they begat, you begat. And, and then <laughs> it, just, it, just, it was very, very difficult. And I remember making it to maybe Genesis 10 twice. And I remember about a week after I had made a commitment to Christ, I remember holding my Bible, same, same Bible that I had struggled through before, and I remember thinking, I feel like a book has been opened to me. And I don't mean this book. I just mean like, I understand this. I mean, it's very difficult. It's 2,000 years old at the earliest. That's what the New Testament is. But I feel like there's something here that's open to me. I know that... I know the meaning of life. Not to be arrogant, but we do as believers. We know the meaning of life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And, and, and oh my gosh, it's here. It was like something opened within me. That's what Paul's doing to them. He's opening the scriptures. He's opening their minds so that they can see Jesus Christ. Third thing Paul does. Third thing Paul does is he proves, it says, he's proving now, those of you who are into, uh, and I, I really love this, it's just conversation. They call it apologetics, where people have real serious questions about the faith. If you're here this morning, and you have real serious questions about Christianity, I hope you know you're welcome. Hope we want it to be a place where you are welcome if you're just kicking the tires of Christianity. Uh, we have to explain, might have to explain that phrase. It just means you're checking it out. You're just, I don't know, is there a God? Is the Bible true? What's this Trinity thing all about? If you're asking those kind of questions, that's great. And so when you enter into a dialogue, whether it's from listening to tapes or whether from listening to a sermon like this or dialoguing with a friend, you are in effect saying, okay, I'm, I'm not rejecting. I'm very open to hearing what you're saying. It's just got to make sense. It can't be nonsense. It's got to make sense. That's what Paul's doing. He comes to these people in the Jewish synagogue and he's saying, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And they're saying to him, you can hear them saying, prove it. Right? Prove it. And I think he did. I would love to have been there and saw how he handled the Old Testament. But he had to have read. Well, maybe he didn't. I think. I think he might have read Isaiah 53. This is written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. And it says this, Isaiah writes, it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. 
We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I don't know how you can read that and not have it scream the cross. It screams Jesus that the Messiah would come and he wouldn't come just to be a political person that would take him out of Roman captivity. He would come to bear the sin and the transgressions of many. It's right there. Paul had to have used this passage. He had to have used it. And other passages from the Old Testament saying Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he had to die and he had to raise Again, so Paul spends time answering objections and he used the scriptures to prove that Jesus truly was the Messiah. Fourth thing Paul does is he says that he, he says, this Jesus whom I proclaim, I gotta look at it here, make sure I get it right. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He proclaimed Jesus. And I take that to mean that not only in his mouth, but in his actions and in his activities and in everything there was about Paul, what he did is he was involved in people's lives so that they, if you looked at Paul, it just proclaimed Jesus. Four things Paul does. Paul reasons, Paul explains, Paul proves, and Paul proclaims Jesus. There's two things that the hearers do. First of all, it says some were persuaded. It says that right in verse uh, 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded. You have to do something. You've heard this message about Christ, and maybe you're even sitting here this morning, and and there is, a, there is a call, there is something saying, yes, you know what? You need to, whatever you're holding on to for life, if I'm holding on to this planter, you got to let go of it. And you'll be persuaded by something else. And you come over to this planter and you hang on to it. And that's what Paul is asking them to do. Whatever it is, that you, how you think your sins are going to be forgiven on, on the day when you will meet God to face. Whatever it is. I'm a good guy. I'm an American citizen. I'm a vet. Whatever it is. Paul says, none of that works. There's only one thing that works. And that is, 
casting all of your sin on someone else who'll pay for it, and that's Jesus Christ. And some of them were persuaded. They looked at all the evidence. They were good Jewish people. They knew the Old Testament, and they said, you're right. He was the Messiah. The one we've been waiting for has come. And they were persuaded. Some of you in this room have been along in your spiritual journey that this morning, this morning, you can say, this is my morning of persuasion. This is my morning where Jesus Christ, today, today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bend my knee to you. I'm going to bend my heart to you for the first time in my life. I'm going to open the door of my heart, Jesus Christ, and let you come in. I'm going to let you be my Lord. I'm going to let you be my Savior. I'm going to let you be my guide for living. Today could be the day for you just like it was for them. Not only were they persuaded, the last thing that they did is that they said they joined Paul and Silas. They left one thing. They became something else. They said, we want to become followers of Jesus. We're going to follow you. You do not need to become a member of this church. You don't even need to attend this church. There are lots of good churches. We've got a whole row of them right here. That's not what I'm calling you to. But you do need to become part of a body somehow. Some Bible study, campus group, church, whatever. Some type of Christian fellowship you need to join. Six ways that Paul communicated Jesus to people and things that he did. Look at the result of what happens in verse 4. It says, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few, or but many, prominent women. The men are just men, but the women are good-looking and strong. They're good Minnesota women. They're prominent women. So here in Thessalonica, you have people mostly coming from a religious background. I, because the phrase God-fearing is not in front of the, the phrase prominent women, you can possibly infer that these people were not part of the synagogue. Possibly. So you have religious types who complete their religion by following Jesus. Or you have people who just come out of secular society and say, wow, I want to know that Christ. Now, whenever you have that kind of reaction, you usually have another reaction. And we have it here too. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Now, this begs a question. This begs a question. How do good synagogue-going religious Jews know people of bad character from the marketplace? Huh? How do they know them? Huh? They know them. They round up these bad characters and they employ these, these evil people to cause trouble for Paul and Silas. Isn't that interesting? The religious institution goes out, finds wicked people, people who are really bad, and pulls them out of the marketplace, and he says, you know, we really need your help on something. I want you to make trouble for this other group. They rush to J Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials shouting, 
These men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They, then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. It, it is kind of interesting here that Luke just inserts this Jason guy. It's like, we know Jason? It's like, I, no, I don't know Jason. But... But maybe everybody knew Jason, you know. Um, they go to Jason's house. They don't find Paul inside, so they drag Jason out there, and they say, "This guy's welcomed them into their into his house." And so they they razz on Jason, but they just put Jason on bail, let them go. But it is the city's in turmoil. Now, from just this account, we don't get the indication that Paul was really in. Thessalonica very long. He actually was there quite a long time. If you read the book of 1 Thessalonians, we know that the people from Philippi had sent gifts, I believe on two different occasions, to help him in his ministry there. So he was there a while. So Paul had made some impact even to a guy by the name of Jason. Without any other, any other uh, indication of this guy, we find that things are happening in Thessalonica and finally it comes to a breaking point where the religious people of the day say, enough, we've had it with you. You're pulling, people from our, you're pulling people from our synagogue. You're pulling people away from our church. You're taking them to a different church. We don't like that. And they stir people up. And that ends Paul's trip in Thessalonica. We go to our second city. He's in Berea now. In verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So they go and they travel further down at nighttime. Once this riot erupts, it's too much. They want to keep them alive, and so they send Paul and Silas on to Berea. On arriving there, they went to, guess where? Good fishing, the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as also did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Again, prominent women and just ordinary Greek guys. So, I'm not sure what that means, but it's very interesting that it's stated that it's very important women and a few guys. Of course, that's kind of the case always, but very important people were, were noted here. Now, it's interesting to look at what the Bereans how they were different than the Thessalonians. It says they did two things. One, they had great eagerness, but they weren't just yes men and women, I guess, prominent women actually. They, they weren't just saying, okay, great, whatever you say. They weren't doing that. They had great eagerness about this, but they also, says, examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And Paul and Luke would say that they were people who were noble because of it. People of Hope Community Church, every time I stand here or anyone else, here's what I want you to do. Take it like this, pour it in here. If it doesn't filter out here, do not believe it. Please, filter it. If it doesn't come out the bottom, it, it, I just don't believe it. With me or with anybody else. That's what they were doing. They were looking at what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is one of my heroes. But he made a mistake. Remember, I, I think he made a mistake with, with Barnabas when he ditches Mark. 
Paul could make mistakes. And they pour it through, and there's things that, when they came through, they said, yes, that's exactly right. They were more noble. Are you like that? When some new thing comes your way, do you say, i got to really study about that. Is that what God would have for me? And you just eagerly go through the book and say, yes, Lord, what is it? What is in your book? Teach me. i got to quote John Wesley on this. Probably one of the most famous quotes of anyone who was so hungry for the Bible. John Wesley was incredibly hungry for the Bible. In 1746, he wrote this. He said, To candid, reasonable men, I am not afraid to lay open what, is, what have been the most inmost thoughts of my heart. So he's going to give you the most inmost thoughts of his heart. I have thought, I am a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. It's going to land sometime. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safely on that happy shore. God himself has condescended. That means not... not we think of condescending like it's, but condescending means he's come down, okay? He's condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo umius libri, a man of one book. Here then I am far from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone. Only God is here. In his presence I open. I read this book. For this end to find the way to heaven. Is there any doubt concerning the meaning of what I read? Does anything appear dark or intricate? I lift up my heart to the Father of lights. Lord, is it not your word? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You give lib liberally and upbraid not. You have said, if any be willing to do my will, he shall know. I am willing to do. Let me know your will. I then search after and consider parallel passages to Scripture, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I meditate thereon with all the attention and earnestness of which my mind is capable. If any doubt still remains, I consult those who are experienced in the things of God. And then the writings whereby, being dead, they speak. And what I thus learn, that I teach. Be like John Wesley. Be like the Bereans. Don't make the mistake of letting other books or sermons be anything more than an hors d'oeuvre for your own personal scrumptious meal of devouring the Word of God. Be like the Bereans. Enjoy it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Talk about it. Think about it. Be like the Bereans. The result is the same in, in Berea. Many of the Jews believed. Many of them. This thing is spreading. This thing is out of control. It's going from city to city. It is spreading. And as soon as it spreads, the, the same result or the same uh, exit strategy will have to happen for Paul. Verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica, it's not that far away, when they heard 
that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Once again, trouble finds Paul. He has to leave. He's going to go to Athens. We're going to come back to Athens in a month after our pain of sexual immorality kind of mini break from that. We'll see what happens in Athens. As we close this morning, I want to ask you a question. There's two cities here. There's really three different responses. Which category do you put yourself in this morning? First category was the Thessalonians. Mostly religious people. Mostly religious people. Good as we'd say, church-going folk. But they had never come to the point of, of understanding that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Jesus Christ was the Savior. He was the Lord. And they never had a personal relationship with him. And probably was just a concept with, with the Old Testament. They had the exact same God, but they didn't understand the final the final point to everything. And this is exactly where I was at in 1983. I was at church. I went to church. I knew the Bible somewhat, a little bit, Ten Commandments, a few other things. This, this God that people were telling me about was the same God I knew of. But the whole idea that I could know that my sins were forgiven in Jesus Christ and that when I die, I knew, I could know right now that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, was a foreign concept to me. I had no idea. What's that about? Some of you in this room may be there and you need this morning. You can trust in Jesus Christ alone. You can, through prayer, invite him in and say, Jesus, I want today, I want to make today the day where I'm persuaded. I've crossed the line today. I want to be a follower of you. Second group of people were also in Thessalonica and they were angry and jealous because of this. I hope that no one's hearing this this morning and saying, you know what? I hate that. I don't have anything to do with that. I hate Christians. can't stand them. I want to do whatever I can to make their life miserable. But if you remain in your religious state after knowing more about Christ and what he offers, you'll do one of two things. You'll either accept him and say, that is awesome, or you will reject him. You will utterly reject him. Say it's foolishness. And the third type of people were in Berea. And they, the Bible says that they were noble. They were eagerly waiting to hear this message. And not only that, but they sifted the scriptures just to check out to see if what it is they were saying was true. It's one of those categories, something that God's asking you to do even this week. Let me close in prayer. God, I see all three of these uh, types of people in my own life. I see there are times where I just clench my fist and, and am jealous or don't come to you and live my life on my own way and, and with things that, plans that seem to make sense to me and when I look back at them are just as convoluted as going into a marketplace and getting evil people to rouse up a crowd. It's just crazy. Father, I pray for us as a church that the same message that turned the world upside down in the first part of the first century would be the same message that would turn us upside down individually and as a city. I pray for this city, God, 
that, that your word would just run, that more and more people would know about the freedom that they can have in Christ, that they can know that their sins are forgiven. They don't have to wander around life wondering what God thinks about them. They can know that there's a Lord. They can know that there's a guide for living, the Bible, that they can, they can read and understand. And, and sure, life is still difficult, but it's so much more easy with following you. So I pray for that, God, that you'd even start that here at Hope. It's only going to happen, God, by your Spirit. So we ask for your Spirit to come and to, to enable us. Lord, in this room right now, there may be people for the first time in their lives who are deciding whether or not they want to become a follower of Jesus. Spirit, I pray you'd give them the courage to step over that line and say, yes, I want to follow you today. I want to start that journey with you. Lord, there are others of us who just need to become Bereans. We have let other people do our thinking. We've let other people be our teachers. But we haven't taken the time to really think about it for ourselves. As we're involved in other people's lives, God, we need to have your words written on our hearts. Not on someone else's hearts who teach us, but on our hearts. So I pray for us as a church that your word would be run hard in our lives. God, be with us now, especially as we move to a time of worship in the communion table, to think about what you've done for us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.